What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got LAPD Lieutenant Mark Evans. We all trust each other. We all know our roles. We all know what each person can do to contribute. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, we want to invite you to get involved in the charity our founders helped start called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the U.S. and globally. The top project you could help with now is in Cusco, Peru. There are 20 girls that the local government rescued but didn't have anywhere to keep them safe, so they put them in jail. The government has said that they're willing to give custody of these kids to the aftercare facility we're helping to expand now once we raise enough money and build an extra building there. To learn more, please click on the Child Rescue tab on our website, which is iCollective.co. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Mark, thanks for making time. Thank you. So, um... You know, on the show with all our different guests, uh, we usually take five minutes somewhere in the hour, you know, between the part one and part two and get them to give me some advice for child rescue and what they would do to uh, or what they would suggest for us to get more people involved in, in combating child sex trafficking and human trafficking. And uh, I think this one, we're going to do a little bit of the opposite. Um, I think, you know, we're definitely going to talk about your entrepreneurial background and and achieving levels of mastery in sports and things like this. But uh we're going to spend more time uh, talking about your current role at LAPD. Can you tell us your official title, what you're in charge of? Yeah, I am the officer in charge of the Human Trafficking Task Force in the Operations Valley Bureau, which covers the San Fernando Valley you know, region of Los Angeles. Sure. So, um, you know, that's part of L.A. that I moved to first when I first moved to California. Um, so for people who aren't as familiar with you know, the 1.5 million or 1.8 million people, whatever, in that part of LA, um, you know, if they've watched the movies, this is the other side of the Hollywood sign in North, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, um, when you, when you think about, well, how many years have you been with, with LAPD now? So I've been with LAPD a little over 22 years or, or actually going on 22 years, almost, almost 22 years. Okay. So, um, let's talk about that progression because you were already, I mean, I'm trying to think when we first met back, Oh, it's gotta be like 16 years ago. Now you were already working vice and stuff back then. Can you talk about a bit of the evolution of, of how you ended up as the officer in charge of a unit like this? Yeah. Yeah. I think you and I met, uh, I don't remember if it was, it was between 98 and 2001. So I know it was then I was, uh, a vice investigator in Hollywood and I was working undercover, you know, going after girls working the street. And back at that time, there really wasn't even there. The coin human trafficking wasn't even phrased yet. Um, from 98 to 2000, 
that that terms didn't exist. It wasn't until about 2000 when human trafficking started to land on the radar and then, you know, things started to change. So I started out in 1998 as a vice investigator. And then um, I worked in that capacity for a little over two years in Hollywood Vice. And then ultimately um, I promoted to sergeant and my course, you know, took some other assignments. And I came back to Vice and ran a Vice unit as a sergeant in North Hollywood. And then by that time, that was around 2012. And in 2012, things had advanced quite a bit regarding human trafficking. And that became a big component of our daily activities in that particular vice unit and with the officers that worked for me. And then um, after, when I left that assignment, I promoted to lieutenant and I took a spot as a watch commander. And then after two years of doing that, I was able to land a position in uh, Operations, uh, Operations Valley Bureau. And then there is where I was, I oversaw all of the vice operations for the San Fernando Valley. And that totals, I don't know, maybe at the time, close to 60 officers who were working undercover in various vice assignments. And then what happened was people knew about my background. There were some other um, influential political leaders. And then I had a chief who was very supportive of launching a human trafficking task force. And then uh, we started it up and launched it and have had uh, quite a bit of success from that point on. So that's kind of a, a quick version of how things came about in my career. Yeah. Well, and we're going to talk a lot more about that on the show, but um, I think one of the things that's been fun over the years that we've known each other and hung out and, um, you know, you've been such a great advisor to us at Child Rescue since, I mean, seven years ago when we, when we were thinking this thing up, you were the, you were my first call of, Hey Mark, how safe is this for us to even start this thing? And what should we do and what should we not do? And you're like, Hey man, as soon as you're taking money out of the traffickers pockets, that's where you might, things might get dicey, but do this, don't do that, you know? And, um, but, uh, I think on another side, like you have, uh, a very entrepreneurial mind. Um, you know, my other friends who are, who are cops are not necessarily, uh, quite as, have as many irons in the fire as you um, talk about your entrepreneurial interests, whether the real estate side or software or other things that you've been a part of over the years. You know what? Um, I want to say that is just uh, probably my ADD that keeps me so uh, active in doing different things. And my brain never stops thinking. Uh, my wife says I'm not much of a cop. I'm more of an idea guy, but um, <laughs> which she has, you know, you know, people don't know she she's an accomplished officer herself, former, formerly with L.A. sheriffs and now LAPD. So, yeah, correct. And so um, kind of what happened is, I, I don't know, ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to. Uh, I always wanted to be involved in running some kind of business. And I remember at about 16 years old, I started a baseball card uh, business and we would meet a friend of a a friend of mine and I, we would go to these various baseball card shows and we would set up uh, a stand and we would sell baseball cards. And we had had this, we had a collection. We counted the cards one day and we stopped counting at 750,000 cards because we just got tired of counting and we had a, a big stack left, you know, there's a lot left. So we must've had, you know, close Hold to on, the, say that you know, number again. 
750,000 baseball cards. <laughs> so our parents hated them and they would be strewn all over the house. And we'd be like, don't touch those. Those are worth money. And our parents didn't think much of that really. <laughs> but um, my friend was a couple years younger than me and I was more the business side and he had everything memorized about like prices and, and good cards. And so we made a good little team. So I remember the first time we went uh, to a, a card show, we rented a table and we set up our display. And uh, at about noon. How old are you at the time? I, I was barely 16 because I just barely had gotten a car. And so uh, at about noon, my mom came by. She's working in the area. She stops by and says, hey, how much? Uh, I brought you some lunch. I figured you probably didn't have any money for lunch. Have you made anything? I go, yeah, we've made some money. And she goes, how much have you made? I said, I don't know. We've been too busy selling stuff. I haven't had time to count it. And she goes, well, let me see. So I pull out a huge wad of cash in my left pocket, you know. And she's like, her eyes open. She's like, oh, my gosh, look at this, you know. <laughs> He's selling and drugs. <laughs> and I go, hang on, hang on. I reach out another wad just as big from my right pocket. And she, then that was when she realized, like, these baseball cards are worth some money. <laughs> and so we uh, we sold baseball cards. And that was kind of the start of it as a kid. And uh, later, probably the best decision, you know, financial decision I made was um, we used to, we're heavily involved in, you know, flipping properties and doing some real estate here and there. But I started a mortgage company and I uh, learned a lot of very valuable lessons that really transcend all of, all of um, the jobs I've had or uh, people I oversee. And it taught me a lot of lessons by running that mortgage company. In, way, in what way? Like what's an example? Well, I, the big takeaway is I knew, I knew the basics of, um, of mortgages and, and there were a whole bunch of people that told me I couldn't do uh, what I what I wanted. They said I couldn't start a mortgage company because I didn't have a realtor license. Well, I knew there was a backdoor way to get licensing through um, the state of California. It was the Department of Corporations. And so I went that way and I didn't have to have a realtor license. And then I, I used to help um, do some financing with uh, a construction company that was owned by my uncle. And so I had some very basic knowledge of finance, and then I learned to hire smart people. And and I had a goal. This is funny. I had a goal of making um, twelve hundred dollars a month. That was my only goal because I just wanted to make my little house payment that I had. You know? So it was a very limited goal. And I remember um, I started that company in uh, in August or so, and by January. In January of the next year, uh, that month we made like fifty-two thousand dollars. So it blew away the the little expectation I had, and it, all of that was really perpetuated by you know being a good talker and having good people skills, but is imperative to hire good people, and that permeates everything I do, whether it's police work, um, real estate, contractors, things like that. You know, hire good people. Well, and and I know just from my years of hanging out with you that like kind of this idea of not really taking no for an answer in the sense of like, not that you're going to bulldoze somebody. Um, but I do feel like you've got a unique talent for staying on this side of the rules, but not letting somebody else's opinion determine your future. And like, <laughs> I can't think of any time that I've heard of you saying like, well, so-and-so said we couldn't do it. So I gave up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. That brings up a really interesting story. So my wife and I were looking at buying a, an apartment complex, and this was a 17-unit complex out of state. And er, there was a whole list of people that I could just rattle off that said, you know, don't do it. Um, 
you know, what if the, what if the renters don't pay their rent, you'll go bankrupt. And, uh, you know, it's too hard to manage out of state. And there were all these reasons why I couldn't do it. Well, you know me, I mean, that means I'm going to go do it probably. And so (laughs) sure enough, we did. And the key was we did a lot of homework. We penciled out everything. I had a partner who's a CPA um, who happened to be my brother and I trusted and we penciled everything out and we did a very good evaluation. And I learned one from real estate, don't ever buy on emotion because you always lose. And, um, and so we, we used all of the practical approach we had and we used the tools available and we pencil everything out and it's honestly worked exactly like we've penciled out. And at this point I bought those and I was um, 33. And so we've owned them for about 12 years now. And I literally have a 0% vacancy rate. I think I've had three vacancies in 12 years. And uh, it's been it's been great. We have um, some equity, and it from an investment standpoint, it was a, it was a great investment. But there's always people who will tell you why you can't do something, and reality is, you have to just sit back and and you take the risks on your own, and you know take educated risks. But don't listen to the masses because the masses are all in one big general pool, and usually they want to be somewhere else. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny because all these dumb things I've done in my life, right? Um, it's like some of the things people told me not to do, I actually shouldn't have done them. And then other things that I definitely, it was a great thing that I did them. People told me I shouldn't do them. Um, You know, I think for me, a lot of times I look at like, what are the results of the person giving the advice? And if they have the results I'm looking for, maybe I'm more interested in their opinion. And if they don't have the results I'm interested in, maybe their opinion doesn't hold as much weight. Mm-hmm, but right. but even that is not enough. Like what what do you use when you're when you're trying to make these kind of decisions that you know hundreds of thousands of dollars are involved or more? What what how do you gauge things? What what's kind of your rules of thumb for sorting through whether advice is helpful advice or not for you? Yeah, it's funny. You know, my brother told me something uh, a while back, and it sounds um, cocky and, and a little arrogant, but it. <laughs> it just resonated with me. And he said, you know, Mark, and he's been very successful in his career. And he's like, Mark, I don't take advice from anyone that makes less than me. And in other words, always look up and, and, you know, you help people that are below you. And, and it's not that their, their opinion is of no value, but when you start talking about investments and putting money on the line and all of that, you talk with the people who have been there and done it, you know, not the naysayers. And so that's one thing that just kind of stands out in my mind. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit, I know it's different, but, you know, Warren Buffett talks about death by committee and, and, you know, he doesn't have advisors. He does the research himself. And he says that he feels like looking in the mirror is a group decision. Yeah. Um, There is something about like taking the responsibility for your own choices, you know, both positive and negative, right? Yeah. You know, something else I saw, Jess, I've seen this in police work a lot and, you know, police work, you are highly, highly scrutinized uh, more than you would scrutinize any investment by far. Mm. And, um, you realize that, um, I just drew a blank. I was to say, you know, turn 45, something, something about making decisions and taking your own advice oh, or yeah, taking yeah. responsibility. Awesome. Awesome. And you realize like when you have a large group of people with all of these varying, um, opinions, that's great because a lot of varying opinions can help you come up with the best solution. But conversely, with a lot of varying p- 
opinions can also paralyze an organization. And so it's really critical to have some trusted advisors and you, you make decisions, you know, you take all the input from people, but then you have the decision makers who, who can't just, you know, sit back on their laurels, but they have to make a decision and go with it. Otherwise you'll just be paralyzed and never progress anywhere. Yeah. Well, um, another subject I want to talk about too, is just thinking about mastery in general and, and, you know, gaining higher levels of competency, you know, obviously uh, to get promoted to such a high level in, in such a prominent police department, you've done that there. Um, your investment entrepreneurial world has had its ups and downs, but uh, your, your money ahead on that in a big way. Another one is athletics. You know, we're, we're obviously audio only here, so people can't see that like your biceps are bigger around than my thighs. But um, <laughs> thinking, thinking of like, uh, by the way, I love bringing Mark to anything for child rescue because he looks the part of like the tough cop you know, shaved head and big, big biceps, but, uh, you look, you know, to people to size you up, you might look a little more like a football player than a basketball player, <laughs> but, but you guys, you know, on your different comp teams and this stuff have done extremely well over the years. And, you know, that's been something I know you've, you've put the hours into. What do you feel like, you know, a sport like that, that's so popular, especially where you're at in California, what do you attribute you know, your, your higher skills, let's say at something like basketball, where a lot of people are interested, you know, desire isn't enough. Um, you know what, if you don't mind, I'll even, I'll even try to tie that into, um, into, you know, how that applies to business practices as well. But, um, one, I think, you know, it's just been something that we, I had a passion for my wife loved to play basketball and we've, we play basketball really at every level. Um, you know, since we were, very young kids and played our whole lives. In fact, we played in some uh, men's adult leagues and uh, we decided to finally retire from that just this last year. So I, I gave it a, I called it a wrap, but you know, what was funny is we were a bunch of old men really. And we played in a, in a men's league, but we had three women on our team and we would dominate every year after year after year. And there was no reason for us to do that. I mean, we were playing against kids in college these kids could dunk the ball. They could do everything known to man. They were so athletic. And we know now at this time we're getting fatter and slower and can't jump as high and we would still win. And one of the takeaways from that is that, you know, we played with a core group of people all the time for years and years. And we ultimately played together for about 21 years. And the reality was we knew, I knew without a doubt, what my guy standing on the wing was going to do when I passed him the ball. And if he missed, I played with him so much. I knew that if he missed, it would, he would miss a little short, but it would skip off the front of the rim to the opposite side. So I'd go there and pick up the ball and be able to put it back. We just knew each other so well that it made our team very effective, even though there was really no reason we should be winning from an athletic standpoint against these other people. And they didn't really play as a team. So kind of the takeaway I got from that was that, you know, you build, this is the way I do it, but I build loyalties to people and I'm going to use those people all the time. And then until they prove that, you know, they're not loyal to me and then I'll move on. But I want to establish a team that's rock solid and we all trust each other. We all know our roles. We all know what each person can do to contribute. And it seems like that's a, a key component to being very successful, whether it's on the basketball field or in a mortgage company or a real estate investment trust or something like that or police work. 
Well, it's interesting. You know, I think we're going to, especially in part two of the interview, we'll talk about innovations in police work and principles of undercover work and, and kind of some of the cooler parts of, of what you've done. Um, but it's interesting to think how much, you know, whether it's entrepreneurship, I know you, you've built a software company and these other things, or whether it's innovation in a police department, that these are not typically a, a, a singleton sport. You know, like these are, these are team efforts. These are group dynamics kind of things. Yet how much of our school system is built on you alone? You know, if you collaborate with other people, it's called cheating. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's all about how good you are on your ACT scores by yourself, you know? And, yeah. you know, as an athlete, it's not like you don't need to put your running in and do, hit, hit the gym and like do your part to show up on your A game. But um, I don't know if you feel the same way. Sometimes I feel like th that's great, but we have such an overemphasis on how good you are as the individual that maybe um, whether it's the business literature or, or other parts of society, we don't emphasize like just what an advantage it is to, to have group dynamics work so well that you guys who, you know, on an athletic basis maybe wouldn't win, but because of your group dynamics, you dominate. Um, it seems yeah. like a message that isn't maybe as, as forefront, maybe it's not as sexy or it doesn't make as good of a, a soundbite for the news or something. I don't know why it's underemphasized because it, it seems to win over and over. Well, you know, another thing too is something that's, you know, something to, point out is that you have you have a team and you have someone who's really smart uh, a, a good leader could see that smart individual as you know hey this is a great team teammate and i got to have this person on my team because they make they help make the team the best you can be uh, conversely some maybe a less effective leader would say you know what that guy's too smart he could take my position and they see that person as a threat and they will stifle the productivity of the individual because of their own insecurities. And so you see, you know, you have to be a good leader. You really have to let your guard down, in my opinion, to, to help everybody elevate and let them get the accolades as the leader. You're not going to get the accolades necessarily, but, but people know you oversaw this team, right? And because of your leadership, they excelled. So you're kind of seen as the, as successful the after the fact on the, on the total success of the team. It takes a little bit of patience though, right? Some delay gratification um, and, and, you know, looking at kind of, it takes long-term thinking to approach it that way. And uh, I don't know, it, it seems like long-term thinkers are the ones that, that really dominate in the end, you know, whatever they're trying to accomplish, they seem more likely for, you know, to reach those higher levels. Um, so another thing too, um, I'm thinking about this, this thought you brought up about building loyalty. Um, as soon as you said it, I mean, it makes a ton of sense to me, but what are, what is your standard operating procedure? When you, when you found someone that you're thinking, man, this is the kind of person I'd want to be attached to. Um, this is someone I would want on my team long-term or as a trusted advisor long-term or things like that. What is, what is building loyalty look like for you? Are you, trying to find ways to scratch their back first. What's, what does that relationship building look like? Well, initially, you know, if you don't know the person at all, you're going to look at their, I'm just going to call it service, you know, um, what type of service they provide and how competent were they? And, and did you like what they did? And when, when I find those people, those are the ones I'm going to stick to. I'm not going to change 
and use some different service. So in, in the mortgage world, I'll give an example. I developed a very tight relationship with one particular escrow company. And every time I could control a, a uh, transaction, I would want to go to that, that company. And, you know, I would always call them and, you know, talk to them and take time to know about their families. And I would cater lunch to them. And, you know, I would spend, you know, $300 for a catered lunch from, from, um, from the Olive Garden, let's say. And then, and then they were, they were really grateful and happy because I fed the whole, whole office. But in return, what I got is they would call me and say, Hey, um, there was a mistake in this type of document, whatever. And so we wanted to see if you want us to change it. And, and I would like, yeah, definitely. Thanks so much. Well, I invested, I gave them my business. They were loyal. I was loyal to them. I took care of them for their good work and, you know, cater to them. But what they did for me saved me thousands and thousands of dollars. <laughs> and so the payoff was huge by just, just being interested in them and, you know, give them some lunch every, every month or every other month. And it went a long way. And so I just look at, I look at the service they provide, are they competent? And then I try to stick with those people and have backups available if, if something were to fall through. Well, it's interesting how exceeding expectations makes all the difference, right? Like in the investment sales business, like people expect you to buy them lunch. In fact, they expect like an expensive lunch, you know, like it's, mm, that's right. the way the world works. Right. Yeah. Um, and they like, you know, it wasn't that, I mean, it was cool when our accounting firm would like take us to the NHL game or some big concert was coming in town. They take us to their box or whatever. Right. That was cool, but it didn't necessarily, it wasn't like mind blowing. Like, wow, that's awesome. Nobody else has ever done that for us. Cause our, the law firm did it for us and the accounting firm did that for us. And what, you know what I mean? Like, cause that's how the game is played. Yeah. Um, it's, it's that doing those things for people ab like above the expectations that I think is the real standard. Like I'm guessing that the other people who did what you did were not sending in lunch from the Olive Garden is what I'm guessing. May, you know, maybe that's the case, but I think there's also the personal touch. People, people really liked, um, you know, Rachel and I, people really liked that we were, um, human connection. Yeah. The human connection people like, they love, people love to talk about their families, their life. And so often, and I have to be very careful, even sometimes Rachel and I will go to, to, uh, parties and I'll be like, Hey, let's not talk about ourselves because inherently people are like, Oh, you're cops. Tell me some stories. And they ask all these questions. And then we just end up taking over and dominate the conversation. And we've, we literally practice flipping it and telling them, Hey, tell us about your kids. Tell us about this. Tell us about that. Because people feel good and they like you when they get to talk about the things that are important to them. And I think that that really helps develop those relationships where they just like you. And they may not really put a finger on why they like you, but I, I put my finger on that's one of the key elements of why they like you. It's funny as you're describing it, it sounds so transactional, you know, like straight out of the pages of how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie or something. Right. But yeah. I think maybe a little bit of the magic that's not necessarily covered in just, you know, sharing that tactic is like knowing your wife, like when she asks about somebody's family, she really, really wants to know, like, like it's a genuine curiosity that I'm sure makes the difference between just a tactic versus something that actually builds a relationship is not just asking the question, but actually like wanting to know what the answer is and having a legitimate interest in the answer. Um, 
you know? Yeah. But you know, another thing like in her case is, and I'm not, I'm not good like this, but she could meet someone one time and she will recognize their face and she'll know, Oh, we met at this place. And she just remembers. I, I'm just happy to remember where I put my car keys, you know, but, um, <laughs> but she's really it's good flattering. It's very yeah. flattering that she remembers people and she just loves people so much. I mean, like you, you totally scored in the wife department, right? Having somebody like that, who her like automatic position is she likes people, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know that she scored equally as much in the husband department, <laughs> but I definitely scored in the wife department. Yeah. Well, listen, let's call this part one. Um, please tune back in for part two of our episode with Mark. We're going to talk about undercover cop stuff and innovation in policing and the lessons of entrepreneurship and innovation that apply no matter where you are. Thanks so much. At Farmers Insurance, we know a roof can withstand a lot. One exception being an airborne car. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.